I don't think that Xi Jinping has a heart attack. We necessarily, this is problem solved. I think Xi is in many ways quite consistent with his predecessors. The change has been the party's assessment of their progress and their assessment of internal and external conditions. And they could certainly reassess and maybe some of our actions will cause them to reassess. But I don't think it's one man, Xi Jinping, that is causing the strategic tensions. And so therefore, I'm not as interested in the topic that I used to be quite interested in the government, which is sort of what is Xi Jinping's level of relative power to his fellows or how does, you know, is it Xi Jinping in a bathrobe circling a document or is it the whole standing committee or the whole Politburo coming to consensus. That's less important from my standpoint these days, because I see there there is being a very consistent logic that's driving the party's goals. Is the U.S. in ideological competition with China? How does one even go about answering that question? And what are the implications if the answer is yes? To discuss, we have on two of the West's foremost experts who have devoted decades of their lives to ingesting CCP documents. Dan Tobin teaches at the National Intelligence University and Ryan Manuel at Hong Kong University. The views Dan expresses are his own and do not reflect official policy or the position of any government agency. October 2017, Xi gives a speech to the 19th Party Congress. Dan, why do you believe that this should have ended the debate on whether the U.S. is in ideological competition with China? I'd like to start a little bit with the significance of the speech overall and kind of the argument I make in some recent congressional testimony about why it should have ended the debate in the United States, but also elsewhere about the nature of China's ambitions. The ideological piece is a key component of that. And I think that it should have ended the debate for three reasons. One has to do with the the content and the clarity of what she actually said. Another has to do with the venue and the weight that that venue carries within the Chinese system. And the third is kind of more of a mouthful to express in one sentence, but I think the speech should have inspired us to pay more attention to the party's own account of its worldview and motivations as expressed in its guiding ideology. And that if you put in context what she said in the speech in that larger context of the party's guiding ideology over time, that should have caused us to re-examine several of the ways that we've tended to frame the party's motivations and frame the way that it does strategy. And it should have caused us, I think, to re-examine the type of questions that we ask about China and the kind of the research agenda that we've been using in China Studies in English for some time. And so in the testimony or in the paper, I kind of take the three categories that she spoke about when he talked about the significance of this new era for socialism with Chinese characteristics that he proclaimed in the speech And he talked about this new era being of tremendous historical importance for the development of the People's Republic of China and the Chinese nation, as well as the development of international socialism and the development of human society. So if you take each of those three areas and kind of unpack them, I think in each area, it's illuminating about the consistency of the party's goals over the long course of its rule and also is illuminating about the nature of the U.S.-China strategic competition, which, as we all know, appears to be becoming more severe by the day. But before we even kind of delve into that discussion of those three areas, I think it might be useful to talk a little bit about the context for my research and kind of the broader context of the debate that we're having in in U.S.-China relations, which I think some people have described it as the second who lost China debate, 
um, which is, you know, the first one being after the communist revolution succeeded. But certainly it's a question of did we collectively as a community of China specialists get China wrong in some profound ways? And I'm in, in the analytic camp that says that we did, and I'm not excluding myself from that category. I was a professional China watcher for much of the time, and I really only came to start to reevaluate some of the, the key ways that we frame our discussion of China around 2016 was when I started to change my views. Why? I'm sorry. I also <laughs> like... that, that was such a succinct question that I almost <laughs> missed it. There is no other question. I mean, also, like, I'd like to say that like, this is great because I'm Australian. So listeners who are warning now, I'm just going to check myself out of this and be like, no, I didn't get anything wrong in US-China relations. <laughs> I well, I, I, was, yeah, but, uh, I didn't well, get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. I'm well, out. Well, you're not out at all because, of course, <laughs> as, as our, anyone who follows China knows, knows that Australia has been having its own. Yeah, all right, all right. I mean, okay, you know. okay. But the question remains, why did you change? So, um, well, I think there's kind of been a broad reevaluation that started to happen in the late Obama administration. If you were to pick a year when the change definitively happened, it was somewhere around 2017 or 2018 when you had the new U.S. national defense strategy under President Trump. But if you look back, the late Obama administration, there's already a, a reevaluation that's taking place. Mm. Um, and part of that was uh, a debate that a friend of mine, Tim Heath, uh, you, you actually may... I read an early draft of his book in, what, 20... 2014, 2015, that came out. I think this is really important, though, because, I mean, Xi Jinping uses guiding ideology heavily for those of you who are sort of tracking these things. I, I, I kind of, I got a bit interested before our talk when I was reading your paper about this this guiding ideology. And so yeah, I, yeah. I would go and chase them all up. For those of you who have yet to be bored by me at dinner parties, I, my job is I make sort of software tools for China nerds. I, I like write, write giant databases and machine learning and sort of stuff like that. And so I went through all the times that Xi Jinping used this phrase and, and he himself doesn't seem to have changed his use of guiding ideology. And I think you're 100% right that the debate has shifted astonishingly quickly and we as china watchers sort of watching ourselves i think there's a consensus that the china watching community shifted around 2016 tim heath could rightly say given his book came out beforehand right he might be a bit earlier but there, there was a shift and i guess i'm just curious as to why if you talk to the business community they also pitch it around 2016 but mm. of course the speech that you're talking about as a very seminal sort of turning point for like why we should, in your opinion, reevaluate ideology is after yeah. 2016. If you look at Xi Jinping's use of guiding ideology, it's also yeah, yeah. consistent. I mean, this, this question of sort of like how you change your mind, I think is so interesting because you're a leading indicator in that sense. Or a lagging indicator. I mean, there were people on China who had a, a darker view earlier Mm. Um, and, and I think one of the interesting questions is why were they not able to persuade mainline China scholars in and out of government, you know, across countries and regions to change their view? Why were they not listened to and why 
did we hold fast to some of the paradigms that we had been holding fast to? Maybe actually, I, I know we keep sort of like, we keep throwing out crumbs for people, but maybe we should actually start with the incumbent paradigm, if you will. Let me sketch that a little bit. So I think that a great place to start about the incumbent paradigm is the introduction to John W. Garver's magisterial history of China's foreign relations, China's quest. Actually, it came out in 2016, so I'm not sure what, what was so important about 2016. But there's parts of the introduction where he approaches and then kind of maybe draws back at the last moment from some of the conclusions that I've come to. But he ultimately sticks with a fairly conventional account of China's history under the party's rule. And the way that he frames it, I think, is is a pretty clear explication where he says, look, the regime adopted a, a dysfunctional political and economic system from the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the story of their modern history is trying to cope with that. And so, <laughs> and so after Mao's death, they discard the dysfunctional economic system, but they keep the dysfunctional political system. And so what you then have is the market economy gets China going. You have massive wealth creation, but also massive social dislocation in all sorts of ways. The party's Leninist system is not well equipped to deal with that. It comes to a point in Tiananmen and then the collapse of the Soviet Union. And afterwards, and so he's writing in 2016, he hasn't quite gotten to the new confidence of Xi Jinping. So he's framing the post- Tiananmen era as being a period where the party uses nationalism and economic legitimacy to paper over lack of belief in the original socialist project that Mao had been pursuing. And the party feels like it is besieged in a world swept by liberal ideas. So, you know, part of the unipolar moment, but extending all the way forward. So under that paradigm, the way that we tend to ask questions about China is we've assumed that ideology is not particularly important because whether it's the reform era, Deng's embrace of pragmatism, or whether it is the post-Soviet collapse, lack of legitimacy for socialism, we've assumed that the party leaders are basically trying to keep the lid on their domestic challenges and they want to keep growth going. And it's an account of their motivations that's fairly cynical, sort of condescending, basically says... They want to stay in power. That's their paramount aim. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had people offer that piece of wisdom to me that that the paramount aim of the party is to stay in power. And that's what we've got to remember. And so they're basically defensive. They're basically reactive. And, you know, the cliche about crossing the river by by feeling the stones from the reform era probably also plays into that, that they're sort of they're just kind of muddling through and trying to keep things going. And that's the way that we've tended to frame China. And I think that's led to a research agenda of saying, what are China's problems and how is it failing to cope with them? And then even today, even though this conversation has shifted writ large among staff and people in the government, if you go to think tank conversations downtown, still the conversation about China's future is basically when is the party going to fail and how is it going to fail? And it sort of doesn't attribute a lot of agency to the party's leaders, I think. It's kind of a condescending view. And I'm not saying that China doesn't have incredible domestic problems and challenges. Mm. But I think it's a bit of a distorted view. I mean, if you think about the United States, and maybe the same is true of Australia, I don't know. But in the United States, pretty much every day, a book comes out on the left or the right saying that our country is going down the tubes and is finished and we're in real trouble. 
And so the focus only on the problems and the challenges can maybe sometimes be a distorted perspective. And so I began to be interested in, as a result of Tim's work, where he was challenging the idea that China doesn't have a strategy. And he was saying, you know, they don't have a document that says national strategy, but what they do have is these high-level authoritative documents like the Party Congress report that comes out every five years, like the Constitution that's kind of a slightly lagging but slightly more authoritative but slightly more succinct version of the party's basic policies. And so what he said is, you know, you actually can piece together, and it's not even a matter of piecing together because a lot of it's consolidated in one place, what their goals are. But what what made me start to reevaluate some of these reigning paradigms was the particular challenge I faced in trying to update some of Tim's work in 2016. Because when Tim wrote his seminal paper in 2012, he was pinning it to the Hu Jintao's midterm party congress in 2007, the 17th, when Hu Jintao was presiding over that congress and presumably is laying out the agenda that he wants or whether it's the agenda of the collective leadership. Either way, it's, there's, there's a consistency to that as a signal. But what I was facing was Xi Jinping was deep into his first term. We could clearly see in a number of areas that he was saying some different things. The system has to pretend at least that it's adhering to the last party Congress, which had been Hu Jintao's valedictory party Congress in 2012. But what that led me to is I didn't have the 19th party Congress yet. And I was listening to what she had said in some of his early speeches that he was kind enough to put in a book for us, which oh, was, uh, uh, <laughs> which was his government. Oh, thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it actually, I, I actually recommend it to any China specialist. I mean, because if you think about it, you know, this is framed as and is a tool that the party uses to articulate what its goals are in a lot of different dimensions, both internally and externally. And so, you know, we can, of course, look at, you know, whether they're actually fulfilling any of these or what they're actually doing on the ground. But it's a useful, it's a useful signal. The photo is very odd, though. <laughs> well, the photo at the, at the beginning is the same style as the selected works of other top leaders. So <laughs> he didn't dare actually say selected works. But... <laughs> well, say, what sort of guy knows the photo of the selected works? Of the, you, there has to be a very, very, very select audience in the world. that goes, yeah, I like that photo. But I, I really noticed the airbrushing quality has improved since, uh, you know, since, since Charles Young's collective works hit the, hit the stands. That's one I don't have. So if you have that yeah. volume, I was only published in Hong Kong. So uh, so I'll send I'll send you guys a copy. Looks a little different on the photo these days. Um, well, well, a little more more obscurely, I just received in the mail a three volume history of the party's ideology that they bothered to translate into English. It's, I love how passive you sound on these things. Oh, I just received it in the mail. <laughs> and you're like, you must have looked for that for months. Come on. Uh, you can admit it. We're friends. Well, We're all friends. Okay. Actually, one of, my, one of my students actually pointed it out to me. I wasn't aware of it. And it took a little harder to identify the Chinese title because usually your fellow China specialists will know, usually in an English translated volume, at the, like the last page, they have the title and the author in Chinese and, and everything. But this didn't. So... It turned it out that uh, you, you had to look up Zhidao Shixiang to, <laughs> to And it just it happened to pop into the mail. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. So let's pause here, though, because you sort of, you've gone through a lot there. So let's just, right, can we, right. I'll just try and 
say where I, I think swerved away from China studies world, shall we say, which is, of course, doesn't include everybody and blah, blah, blah. But so you think that the conventional narrative is one of the party wants to stay in power. And that's what that's what always gets, as you said, you've heard it countless times. Is your issue with that assertion or the issue of the next part that comes after that, which is how we take, say, as a field, that assertion that the party wants to stay in power as its primary goal, and then kind of, you know, from there it's like, well, if it wants to stay in power, we should assess how good it is at, like, running a government, and if we you know, look at that, then we want to look at China's challenges, and then that leads to this divergence that you're speaking about between what you're working on and the, the people you're talking to and what you refer to as downtown. So... Do you think that the idea that the party wants to stay in power is wrong? Of course, any political party or any person wants to retain the position that they have. What I think is wrong is the idea that the overarching weight of effort and the overarching goal which drives everything else mm-hmm. is this idea of staying in power, right? So you, you hear people talking about the amount that they spend on internal security and all of these things. And, you know, you, Jordan, are someone who spends a lot of time in Chinese documents and a lot of time in the Chinese press. I think if you look at the overwhelming weight of what they spend their time talking about, it is transforming China from a poor and weak country that it was in the early 20th century into a modern, powerful socialist country that enjoys a place in the world and in status and in role that is commensurate with China's endowments of talented people, you know, land, resources, cultural history, all of those things. And this is something that Xi Jinping helpfully drew a lot of attention to. So in his first several speeches, he foregrounded this concept of natural rejuvenation, right? And National rejuvenation, he wasn't the first person to say it, of course. And some, you know, the Chinese uh, Communist Party sometimes cites Jiang Zemin, though actually it was Zhao Ziyang at the 13th Party Congress that articulated it in the same way that she does. But they tended to talk about socialist modernization as the goal, and he foregrounded national rejuvenation. It used to be sort of national rejuvenation was going to happen along the road to socialist modernization. But he foregrounded national rejuvenation. And he's also tried to foreground the consistency of that as the party's overarching purpose. You know, in the 19th Party Congress, he called it the party's original aspiration. But in his first several speeches, you know, he, he gave kind of what I describe as his inaugural address when he's first selected as general secretary. And they walk out onto the dais and they give a short speech. And then he gave a speech about the spirit of the 18th Party Congress And then he gave his speech at the historical exhibit on national rejuvenation at the National Museum. And in those three speeches, he links this theme together. Yeah, let's sort of zoom in on one of them. So the speech that you're talking about, which is the remarks after he sort of reached the summit. And then, I mean, the problem with this stuff, of course, is there's just so much of it. Sure. And so... What I might try and do through this is, as I said, I kind of ran all this through my fancy little database thing so I could have specific examples to push you on through the way. So the first first time that Xi Jinping uses is in November 2012 in exactly the speech you're talking about. But what's so interesting is that he says that the party constitution lays out clear rules 
for the party's character, aim, guiding ideology and struggle. As in the party constitution is how he's now going to talk about the things that come next. And in the context of this idea of national rejuvenation, it seems to be, to me in my reading of it, much more to do with socialism with Chinese characteristics, which of course bolsters yes. your case, right? I'm not at all saying that, you know, I, I think we're 100% aligned there. But the idea of national rejuvenation as a sort of nationalist project, I, I think that's what you're getting at, right? Your point is that, like, the party's trying to run a country, and instead of us looking at, at, at how well it runs that country or doesn't run that country, what we should also look at is this party that is trying to use nationalism and use ideology to grow China, which... Yes, part of that is governing and modernization and all those things, but another part is just the goal of making China strong, which is ideological. Is that a fair summarization? Yeah, that's pretty close. Let me modify a little bit. So, and it, it's great that you point out the you know socialism with Chinese characteristics as the guiding ideology. What I'm trying to draw attention to is the way that the various pieces of the party's guiding ideology work together to articulate its motivation, which seem different to me than what we have tended to talk about. I'll have to sort of preview a little bit of the next piece in order to make this clear, which is, you know, we've tended to look at it as they're trying to stay in power. And so developing and modernizing China is an instrument to stay in power. And what I would say is that's kind of condescending. The, the China's top leaders have consistently seen making China a modern, powerful country as the goal, and actually socialism with Chinese characteristics and socialism in general, it's very clear, is an instrument for achieving national rejuvenation. So there's this great passage in that second speech, which is ostensibly about socialism with Chinese characteristics, where he says, we pay close attention to the main objective because the Communist Party has shouldered the historic mission of rejuvenating the Chinese nation ever since its birth. The very purpose of the party in leading the Chinese people in revolution, development, and reform is to make the people prosperous and the country strong and rejuvenate the Chinese nation. And then he talks about the three-step strategic plan for modernization, which dates to 1987, which there wasn't much discussion of about, you know, in the China-watching community before Xi Jinping. But the point of this is that when you look at them talking about socialism with Chinese characteristics and socialism in general throughout the reform era, but I think looking at it in the reform era, maybe go back and look at some of Mao's speeches as well. It's that's quite where, clear that... Yeah. Sorry, I, I really have to stop you there just because sure. that's the assumption where we really diverge. Okay. I 100% agree with your point about looking at, at what they say, taking it really seriously. And also, I've just got to say, like, what amazing work you've done to, to burrow through all these things. But let's focus on socialism and Chinese characteristics. And so the, sure. what they say, as in what Xi Jinping says about socialism and Chinese characteristics, is that it began, one, with the economic reform, and two, after yes. 20 years of the socialist system was implemented since the founding of the PRC in 1949. And that, by the way, for those of you who are like Dan and I and just happen to like things rocking up in your post box, is from the 17th of July speech, 2015, on specifically socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is one of like Xi Jinping's big speeches where he talks about all these things yeah. that we're sort of talking about, just so we can trace as we're going through. Sure, sure. So if we take that, A, 
leaving aside the very interesting fact that the cultural revolution is therefore like chucked out the window entirely. You've forgotten nine years of Chinese history by my counting here if it began with the economic reform and after 20 no, years. Quite, quite the opposite. What I think is, is actually quite important is the party's own idea, which the 1981 resolution on party history that evaluates the Mao period is where they try to frame the consistency of their goals and frame those nine years as an aberration. And we tend to focus on those nine years as an inconsistency Rather than thinking about the consistency over the long haul, and you know, as you know, when they come back to power, it's in the 1981 resolution, they try to frame them, themselves as having been pretty well on track in 1956, and they try to restore some of the institutional mechanisms of the 1956 system, but yeah. they also basically argued that in 1956, They'd established a socialist system and they were pivoting to focus on modernization and development, which actually that template comes from Stalin's 1936 speech, making a similar point in the Soviet Union. They basically say we were on track and, and we got off track for a while, but we got back on track. And so this idea of socialism is the way that we're going to save China and develop it, which Mao didn't put those two sentences in one place, but he had plenty of places where he said one or the other. And from Deng on, they, kept, they keep saying only socialism can save China, only socialism can develop China. It's this idea that they regard socialism, which we could talk about the definition in a, little, in a little bit, they regard socialism as the instrument that is going to achieve national rejuvenation. And by itself, that's not a particularly controversial point. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of scholarship about the early Communist Party leaders having embraced Marxism-Leninism as a path to national salvation, having been impressed by its ability to do state creation, but also the promise that it was the scientific theory that was going to let them catapult themselves to backwardness to kind of the front of the line of modernity. So they would save China, they'd restore its sovereignty, they would develop it, they'd get ahead of the West, but they'd also get ahead of Japan as well on the basis of, of the direction of history. And so that was kind of the promise that drew them to it. And we tend to think that in the wake of the failure of Mao's economic policies and in the wake of the Soviet collapse, they tacitly gave up on that vision of their role in history and the role of socialism in history. But when you look at something like Deng's speech in 1979, the four cardinal principles, where he says we're going to continue to uphold the socialist path or road the um let me see if i can remember them in order here the second one is <laughs> I, I, I can do it I'm but, already, just, don't worry <laughs> no, no the, the first one this is actually a good drinking it's a good drinking game for for, for china oh specials, right yeah so the first one the first one i should be able to do it do it automatically though so let's see so the first one is the socialist path the dictatorship of the proletariat is the second one the party's leadership, and Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. When we tend to look at the speech, and if you look at like a standard account like Richard Baum's Burying Mao, you know, a, a political yep. sort of history of the 1980s, right? So they frame that, and most accounts frame it as, here is Deng putting some boundaries on what can be discussed in terms of political reform, and it's part of this pattern of sort of like loosening and tightening, and it gets framed in terms of the narrative of political reform heading to Tiananmen. But when you actually read the speech, what it is, and the party's been incredibly consistent since then, including the 1981 resolution, but you know the speeches of Jiang and Hu and Xi, 
it's actually an argument for why they why socialism was right for China and why they're sticking with socialism. And from that, you can get some of the pieces of what they mean by socialism. And I think we haven't paid close attention to that. And if we had paid close attention, we would maybe feel sort of less mugged by history with respect to the strategic contest that we're in right now. So that's, I, I just dropped a bunch of stuff. No, 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 no. Let's, so let's go back one step. I mean, this is so important. So two threads to this that you're talking about are, are like the sort of inevitable, you know, the very Marxist history view of the world. And, and you're saying that we got mugged by that. Like, like as in what you've actually done here is linked this current debate on who lost China Mark II where there's right. like you know, the new four Johns, who, who gets to be the new four Johns is yet to be established. <laughs> Let's hope um, we don't go through that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For the listeners, yeah. Anyway, the four Ryans, I can, can, <laughs> it doesn't have a great ring to it. Um, so I want to though say like this idea of history, because what we usefully got to is that socialism with Chinese characteristics and you see national rejuvenation as a sub part of that looking just at what Xi Jinping himself says, right. he says that he links socialism with Chinese characteristics to the rule of law. In the 29th of October 2014 speech... Uh, that's a, that's a, a piece of it. That's a piece of he, it. Well, no, no. Interestingly, he says this here. He, he says, socialism with the characteristics, with the rule of law, will realize the two centennial goals and the China dream and achieve the rejuvenation of the Chinese people. And so... I think that this is this tension that you're talking about is, is like, you're completely right. Like the rule of law is, and, and by the way, in the same speech, he then says that the rule of law, that, the, that we should learn from foreign countries' experience in rule of law system, but never import their rule of law ideology and mode entirely. Right. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of gray area in there. So I'm, I'm not, I don't want to hijack you into a rule of law chat, but I do want to say that like, it's this, the hard part for me is, is in this balance. Like, as you say, rule of law is a part of it. History is a part of it. I mean, we need to always sort of juggle these competing parts. And how do you do that? I mean, is, is that, how do you think about that as part of this idea that as a field, we're not necessarily looking at things the right way? Like, how are we balancing so- multiple parts? So I think maybe this will help clarify and or maybe it'll lead to new questions, which is is great. So the rule of law piece falls under their vision of political development, Mm -hmm. which like every other major policy area is a subset of social Chinese characteristics. So you know how in a party Congress report, they start out by announcing the theme, which the term socialism and Chinese characteristics has been part of the theme since the 13th Party Congress. And then they talk about their accomplishments over the last five years and or the whole tenure of the incumbent general secretary if he's stepping down. And then they sort of admit a few problems. And then they adjust the guiding theory with new components of it. And they can modify long-term development targets And then they lay out the party's vision in specific policy areas 
which have a protocol order almost, and I can recite these in order. So they start with, you know, e- economics, politics, culture, social affairs, ecology, which was added under Hu Jintao, and then national defense. And then yeah. I, I call the next category national reunification because it's Taiwan and, and uh, Macau and all yeah. of that. Yeah. And then foreign affairs and then party building. Right, so the, Every, the everyone of... listening to this never get into a drinking game with Dan on well, the order of party congress speeches. <laughs> you get drunk. I once had, I once had trouble summoning the three of presents when I was drunk, but I managed to, <laughs> to, to do it. I would have been but... Dan's class. They sound a lot better than the ones I teach. <laughs> well, maybe you could be a guest speaker sometime. I guess that'd probably be less <laughs> less relaxing, but. Uh... Um, by the way, I really admire your, um, I read the third chapter of your dissertation, and I think it's the best unpacking of the relationship between the documents process and the Chinese bureaucratic system that I've seen in a long time. So I, I'm, I get a sense you may have a forthcoming book out that, that details some of that. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I, be looking forward to that. I, I, unfortunately, it hasn't been used for, when, when it comes out, we can all use it for drinking games and I'll remember <laughs> all the things I've forgotten. But so let's, let's keep going with this because this is really important. So you're talking about these different sections and you're saying that the order, and then you say economic development is first, but right. the point you're making right. is that you don't believe that's right. Right. So what, what's, what's leading you to think that, that we're, we therefore have sort of taken this in the wrong direction? No, so I think, again, sort of get back to the broader issue of guiding ideology. So all of those policy areas are kind of subcomponents of the guiding ideology. And one of the pieces that we have not paid close enough attention to is that one of the components of Marxism-Leninism that's still in use by the party today. So, of course, they don't you know, talk a lot about the labor theory of value and they don't talk about class struggle very much. But one of the pieces they do talk about is historical and dialectical materialism. And the historical materialism piece is that they believe that basically material factors like economics are the things that drive history. And you can make and you can make scientific judgments about those. And what makes this not totally rigid is that they also believe in dialectical materialism, which is that there's this constant change in the world and you know in in a real nutshell we could go into a lot more detail but the piece that matters for this discussion is that there's this constant change and you put these two things together they think they can make scientific judgments about trends but they also have to continuously reevaluate and re-examine based on what's happening in the world and update their guiding theory which then informs their policy in each of these areas. And so why the Party Congress reports are so important is that they kind of are a summation of the current view of the party on all sorts of policy issues, but also on its goals and their feasibility. And a Party Congress report, it's written at a high level of abstraction. And so some people say, well, that's vague. That doesn't really tell me very much. And that's kind of missing the point because they are a recitation of kind of stock phrases. And what the report tells you is which of those ideas, which of those official theories are still active, or may, and it may introduce some new ones, which they then, then spell out mm-hmm. in sort of secondary literature. And, you know, as you've talked about, Ryan, in, in some of your work, 
the lower level pieces of the bureaucracy then flesh out the specific meanings for themselves in all those sub areas. And so there's kind of this dialogue that goes back and forth between what policy implementation and what concrete things are happening and the high level judgments that are supposed to guide that. And it's actually kind of a dialectical situation because they get input about the world and what's happening from the lower levels. And then sometimes they encapsulate that in a theory and then they broadcast it back out. So the law part is it's, it's one subset of political development that is part of the overall guiding ideology that is supposed to be driving where they're going. Now, the pieces of guiding ideology, some of the pieces that, that I'm drawing attention to are some of the basic components of the party's worldview and its sense of its role in history. And some of those things that I think are still derivative of Stalin's version of Marxist-Leninism in some important ways. But there's all sorts of concrete, mundane, and not so mundane policy areas that also have an official theory, an official set of assessments. And that's not how we've been studying China. You know, we tend to identify the problem that we see, and we maybe cite some documents associated with that problem, but we don't put it in a larger context, and we don't generally study the official theories. And one of the ones that's most dramatic, and uh, you know, not, not, I'm not intending to shift the conversation to foreign affairs at this part in the, in the conversation, maybe that's a different podcast, or maybe that's later on, but we've got a lot of scholarship on what Chinese theorists in terms of academics are writing about foreign affairs. And we have a lot of scholarship on China's actions. But what we don't have as much on are the party's official theories of international relations. And we don't have a lot of a scholarship on the transmission belt between kind of the broader Sinosphere scholarship and ideas and the party's official theory. But the party's official theory is certainly drawing upon ideas that academics are writing and in sort of grabbing the ones that the party decides they think are embodying the scientific yeah. truth and their goals, right? But, but you know, I can't provide tons and tons of granularity in this particular area because the research hasn't really been done. I've, I've, I've focused on the party's official ideas. I can, I can give yeah. you a hand there. So again, I, I told you, I ran this through my little computers before coming on. I'm going to sort of just step through and tell me where I've gotten your argument wrong. Your theory, therefore, is that the change in, in the Xi Jinping era is that mm -hmm. these, this sort of quite set palette of options as to what socialism is and, and this, this view of history has been added to that has been much more of a consciousness of the international situation and foreign affairs but rather than us looking at that because we don't see it because you know foreign affairs stays in its same place and other ideas stay in their same place in the party congress reports instead what you're saying is that it's sort of gone back into the software of the party's ideology itself and so it's sort of come through in each of the areas almost like we're looking down at foreign affairs and, and ideas as as a sort of subcomponent of the master and you're saying that actually like Xi Jinping has added it to the master that is then filtered down into all the different sub areas. Is that a, uh, is that a fair statement? Because I mean, to be honest, that is, if we just focus on guiding ideology and we just look at the development in terms of how leaders have talked about it, right. I, I think we can see that by the way. Like if we look at say, Hu Jintao, you know, the, the leadership before Xi Jinping, Hu 
Pujintal said, you know, when he when he got shown in 1992 and they showed the hand of like, he's probably going to be the next guy in charge. And he had to give right. a speech on what he thinks about these things, which was on 5th of December 1992. He says that his line is quite clear. He says that only economic development can ensure that the party's basic lines and ideology can be sustained. By economic development, Jing Jian Shi, excuse me, that tones of those who Chinese speakers have gone wrong. But, you know, so, so um, in other words, what you're saying is that if we look at Xi Jinping's constant references to guiding ideology and all these things, he has added more stuff to it. He hasn't just said that only economic development can be the line. He's also said that we need to think about the international situation at the current day. It's very much this, you know, this is the, the turning point. Right, right. The century talk. Before that, you know, it's saying that the, the party is facing a difficult international world. And your point right. is that by so, us putting us in silos, we're missing how ideology is having this living thing integrated into it. Is that a fair? Uh, it's, it's not quite what I'm saying, but it's helpful for the discussion. Mm. So, so, so I'm not saying that foreign affairs has somehow been injected in a new way throughout. I think there was a way in which the guiding ideology was filtered into foreign affairs and the implications for foreign affairs were rolled out. And so there's an official foreign affairs theory that's subordinate to the overarching guiding ideology. And that hasn't changed. So what's changed under Xi Jinping, and it actually began a bit under Hu Jintao, he started to talk about some of these same things about the way in which the internal and external situations were intertwined in a way, it, the word intertwined is not the right one, but you, you get my meaning, that the, the, they're interconnected. And so both threats and opportunities China was facing internally and externally were, inter, were interconnected in a new way. And so even in the 2006 Central Foreign Affairs Work Conference speech that we, we got in 2016, when they published it, he starts to talk about that. And Xi Jinping, you know, has this idea, this holistic concept of national security that touches on that. And there's places there where he says, where he talks about the interdependence of security and, and development. But even within the change in the principal contradiction, which we can talk about in a second, that happens at the 19th Party Congress, they don't change the fact that economic development is still the driver of development everywhere and every place else. The change in the principal contradiction, which for a long time had been a version of basically that the country was underdeveloped. There's a Marxist, specific Marxist term, but essentially it meant that China was backward economically. And so at the 19th Party Congress, he actually says, the problem is now uneven development, which sounds boring. But when you get into the specifics, he basically says, you know, we're still a, a developing country on a per capita basis. So the, our status as a developing country hasn't changed. But overall, we've gotten rich. And overall, we've actually caught up in some key areas of technology. And we're the number two economy in the world. And so what that does is that presents us with a new set of internal and external challenges, which are related, they're integrated challenges, and it requires us to develop new theories and new policies in all different policy domains. There's a passage in the speech where he actually says this and frames it in terms of historical and dialectical materialism. Oh. And so what the speech represents as a watershed is it's, a, it's an assessment that the progress that China has made has placed it in a new set of circumstances. It's actually not a repudiation of, of the basic reform era policies. He actually keeps the party's basic line, which is kind of a, a one paragraph articulation of its goals and its basic bedrock policies, keeps that intact. He basically adds two words to that. 
But what it does say is we've reached a new milestone in terms of our status domestically, internationally, and that raises expectations for the type of governance that we have to provide. We can't just be providing improvements in material wealth. We actually have to offer some things like justice and a clean environment. And externally, he doesn't explicitly repudiate hide and bide, but the effect is still the same because what he says is that we need a major country or a literally great power diplomacy, and we're ready to make greater contributions to the world. And that's something that every leader from Mao on had said, basically, at some future point, we've become more developed, we're going to be ready to make greater contributions. But he says, we're finally ready to do this. And so that is a major driver of some of the tensions that we're seeing between China and the US, because for a long period, China wasn't ready to assert its preferences in the international community and with respect to the international order in the way that it has begun to do under Xi Jinping. But what he said was, you know, it's both kind of a defensive and an assertive proposition, which is that if we do not start to exercise leadership, our growing strength is actually going to precipitate containment, which, of course, they now believe is happening. But it's also that we have a rare opportunity based on our assessment of trends in the world to actually seize the initiative in some key emerging areas. And we don't want to miss that opportunity by failing to try to exercise some leadership. And also, if our goal is ultimately to become a global leader in terms of comprehensive national power and international influence, which is a key line in the speech that for the first time in a party Congress speech, they actually talk about not just kind of the abstract goal of improving China's status, but they actually talk about relative status on a global scale. If that's our goal, and our goal is to do that over the next three decades, so it's not tomorrow we're going to achieve that, but over the next three decades, we're going to achieve that. We can't simply flip a switch, you know, two days before the deadline and we're a global leader. We have to actually start exercising some leadership beginning now because we have the wherewithal to do so. And that's what you think the sort of field is missing is that this signaling in the speech means that we should China differently. Well, it's not just that we should look at China differently. A lot of people, a lot of people even who are non-China specialists, mm. were kind of arrested by the dramatic language in the speech. Mm. But there are layers to it that, that were not grasped because they're not reading it in the context of party history. So, example, making greater contributions to humankind, you know, by itself, that's significant. They say they're ready to do that. It's more significant if you know how long and how many Chinese leaders said, this is our long-term aspiration. We're not ready to do it. We're going to do it at some future point. And for Xi Jinping to say, you know, my assessment is, we're now at the level of strength that we need to do that. But the reevaluation of kind of the way we looked at Chinese history is there's, a, there's kind of a contradiction between the research agenda we've had, which is what are China's problems and how is it failing, and the reality that China's the number two power in the world and that they've achieved that over several decades. Mm. And so at every step of the way, we've said, how are they failing? And they're the number two power. But what we haven't studied is the way in which they have carefully tried to navigate towards that goal. We've portrayed them as navigating simply in a sort of ad hoc defensive way. And we've said we've done, you know, they've done different things at different times. So the 1980s reforms look very different than the 1990s reforms. But that actually is intelligible from the standpoint of you've got, you're setting a long-term goal. You don't have to lay out every step from now to that goal because 
you know, the complexity of that, it, that's probably an impossible task. But in order to say that they have a strategy and that they have an agency and that they're competing to become the number one power ultimately over many decades, and that that is actually the very purpose of their governance is to navigate them in that direction, doesn't mean that they have a plan in the box that tells them every step, but that but 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 it shouldn't because their their whole approach is to say we're constantly adjusting to conditions, keeping the long term vision in mind. There, there's an enormous agency and purpose behind that, which is not the way we've talked about China for decades, and and many people are still not talking about China. There there in in some ways a lot of security experts assume that based on looking at China's actions, but China especially is like, no, 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 no. They're, they're reactive and defensive. Everything's driven by their domestic headaches and they couldn't possibly yeah, be, yeah. be navigating with relentless, you know, skill. And, and so that's kind of my, one of the, one of the several uh, ways in which I think looking at how clear Xi Jinping was about these things and his assertion of continuity, that's an empirical thing that we can check. And so you could say, well, that assertion of continuity is the invention of tradition. They haven't had this continuous set of goals. But when I look at the guiding ideology in terms of looking at the canonical record of the party's high-level statements and speeches, both party Congress reports, key resolutions of the Central Committee, selected works of the top leaders, I actually see a very consistent logic. The first piece of which is the goal is a modern, powerful China that occupies a leading place in the world. And the second piece of which is only socialism can deliver that to China. And those two points are not the way that we've framed the role of socialism or of the party's motivation. We framed it as they don't really believe in socialism. They're trying to stay in power and they want great power status. That's sort of like, you know, the number five in the list of things that we talk about. We tend to talk about core interests, which was their importation of the concept of vital national interests, which is not a list of their goals. It's a list of things that need to be defended if they're going to achieve their goals. You know, mm. so that's kind of the point I'm I, I, the, that I'm trying to make. Yeah. So, one just clarification point: Why do you think they're trying to be number one in the world? I think they're trying to be number one for for a very so understandable. What, what you to think to think that? that yeah. Is so different. I mean, that that's where right, you're, so, you're, you're, you're exactly. advancing something different. I'm on I'm on one end of the debate, right? Yeah. Certainly, the <laughs> debate that we've had for a long time. <laughs> And, and, and the people that were on the end of that debate in the past haven't received, uh, you know, a great deal of, uh, of respect from the general China studies field. Mm. But the first piece is Xi Jinping lays out this goal for mid-century of a global leader in te- terms of, he, he translated composite national strength, but it's the Chinese terms is, is when we often translate comprehensive national power yeah. and international influence, right? So he lays that out, and that that sounds like sort of Superman ripping open his shirt. You know, Xi Jinping ripped open his suit, and there was a Superman underneath there, and that caught a lot of people's attention. But when you go back and look at at Deng and and at the others, um, that was actually something that they talked about catching and passing the most advanced countries. And ultimately proving socialism's superiority. So, you know, when you go back and look at Deng, at, you know, Deng's early speeches in the reform era, um, you know, he, he talks about one of the ways that we're going to demonstrate superiority is faster economic growth and better economic growth ultimately. And, and he says basically we're behind because of imperialism and because we're starting from a low base, but we're ultimately going to be ahead. And I think that in, in some ways that's speaking to a broad common denominator 
Chinese aspiration, certainly aspiration among Chinese elites, which is a perfectly natural one. And, and by itself, nothing's wrong with it, which is to say, look, we're this vast country. We're five times the population of the United States. We have very talented people. We have all these resources. We have a great cultural tradition. We should be in first place just on the basis of those endowments. So Mao had this famous speech in 1956 where he says, what are we doing lying down? You know, yeah. you know, if we if we don't actually pass the U.S., we should be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, what, what we tend to think about that speech, we think about him stepping into the, the disastrous policies of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And we say that was hubris. But when you actually look at the targets he laid out in there, China actually hit them by the by the year 2000. And they're now trying to get steel production, you know, less steel production because they have overcapacity. But they actually hit in the, in the grand sweep of history. They actually achieved that goal of catching and passing in some those areas of industrial capacity. And they think that they're on the way towards comprehensively catching and passing. There's nothing wrong with the goal of saying we want to be number one because of our endowments. We should be. We're five times the population. Uh, where I think the problem comes is that they want to do this on the basis of a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship and the values that, that come with that. I think there's an enormous amount of rich, diverse aspects of Chinese culture that they can make a contribution to the world as number one. I just don't think that Marxist-Leninism and the things that they would want to change to make them compatible with their Leninist system are ones that we can live with. So, I, so the second kind of major point that I'm trying to draw attention to is I think that the commitments that they retain with respect to Marxist-Leninism in their guiding ideology, their worldview, their view of politics and how it works are actually quite significant for interpreting their actions and also for the kind of world that they think is compatible with their ambitions. And I think those are a major driver of the current tensions with the U.S. and with the, the larger uh, free world, and not just the fact of China's growing power. I think it's the it's the combination of the growing power with incompatible political systems. And for a long time, both sides could sort of ignore it. China leaders could ignore it because they were trying to keep their head down and benefit from the system and build up their strength. And and we could ignore it because they weren't actively trying to rewire some of the features of the order from within, or at least not in a way that was comprehensive enough that we thought it was a threat. But now they are quite strong and they are saying, look, our success over the last 40 years should give us a hearing and should actually give socialism uh, a new hearing. And that's what Xi Jinping said at a speech on the party's 95th anniversary in 2016. And that is what, you know, as many people have noted, he said a version of that in the 19th Party Congress speech. I think where some of the debate is kind of missing the point is that some people are looking to say, well, they're not exporting socialism or the Chinese system whole cloth like Stalin was in the 1930s. There's no new communist international. They're not, um, you know, trying to create carbon copies of themselves right now. I think it's a little bit early for that assessment because this is a 30-year deadline. And it also, of course, might not look like the, the configuration that the Soviet Union tried to replicate its system. What we can say quite concretely at this point is that the ambition is that their system would be as respected and looked up to and as influential as what liberal democracy has been in the last you know several decades. So it, it's 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 a question of the status of their system and its prestige and its reputation for good governance, and 
its global influence. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to export violent revolution again, but it does articulate a long-term goal for the position they want to occupy. And so that, you know, it's a 30-year goal. I think we're sort of taking their temperature a little bit too early to say that they're not comprehensively pushing this forward. And, and what should the U.S. do? So I think that, um, I mean, that's a whole other you know, gigantic question. But I, I think I agree with the consensus that seems to be starting to emerge both here in Washington and I think among you know, our European allies, as well as some of our other allies uh, in Asia, uh, to include Australia, is that I think that we need to strengthen the relationships among the democracies in terms of trying to coordinate our efforts to preserve some of the features of the post-Cold War order in terms of the predominance of values that we support, rather than each of us kind of independently trying to shore them up or deal with China independently. I think we need to actually do a lot more to coordinate our efforts across countries with similar views. So you're just, again, I, I, I get this wrong all the time, so correct me when, where I get it wrong. But so your point is that we haven't accurately looked at like the 30-year part and that because it's much more ambitious than we have put into our current way of thinking, that means that there hasn't been enough coordination between the like-minded, so to speak, such that the international system is bolstered to make it sort of, I guess, like ideology proof is the wrong way of putting it, but to, to make it resilient to these bigger goals that China is on the way to and that these leaders have much more agency in pursuing than China studies has traditionally given them credit for. Is that a fair summation? Uh, I, I think that's close. I, you know, I think there is still some underappreciation of the goals expressed at the 19th Party Congress, but I think that to understand the nature of this contest, we need to partly understand how deep-rooted it is in the Chinese system. And our neglect of guiding ideology had led us to vastly underestimate both China's goals and the nature of the contest with China writ large. And so I think we're beginning to wake up to that and for quite a few reasons. But there's still a lot of discussion that underplays um, the goals, but also the consistency of aspiration of the party over its history. Is, is this different then from a, a sort of classic rising power situation where we can just look at it as a sort of rising country, it's, it's, its national power is growing, right. you know, blah, 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 blah. We all know the, the theory. Do you think your argument is different from that? Yes, because um, that, that classic idea, you know, that has sort of been injected into the popular imagination by Graham Allison. I was about to say, let's not go. Let's not right? So, but, but we don't need to uh, rehearse that. Our audience is probably familiar with that. It's a um, <laughs> uh, Right. And, 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 that, and the premise of that, part of the premise of that is that the challenge is simply handling China's growing power. And so, you know, maybe you could come to some grand bargain is what some people have tried to wrestle with. They're the people who try to frame the, the problem as being simply the U.S. needs to 
simply adjust to its uh, its the reality or the inevitability of a loss of relative status. And so they put, the, you know, some scholars put the onus on the United States to say, well, you need to figure out how you can deal with this. And the challenge is really for the United States to adjust to a status. But I don't think that's a, a correct assessment of the stakes, because I think the stakes involve a lot of the norms that we care about in the international community, precisely because we're living in a, in a world that's connected to China and our allies are connected to them. Um, maybe COVID is going to cause us us all to you know partially decouple or partially disengage. But we're not, even if we do that, it's still not going to look like the Cold War where you have two, you know, basically separate blocks that are competing on the basis of which of what they do internally. What we're facing is is a much more integrated world. That the Chinese believe that, you know, we believe that. Mm. And so what that world is going to look like is going to depend on what the predominant values are. And what Beijing has absolutely identified is that whoever is able to control and underpin some of the connectivity that some of the sort of the sinews that knit the world together is going to occupy a position of strategic advantage. And they have been trying to get to a place where they can occupy that that position. They're not there yet, you know, by any stretch. But that's what they're actually actively doing. And the motivations are not just the natural one of wanting to be a leading country, but also to both protect their system in the way that they see that the predominant many of the predominant values right now are deleterious to it or or press on it. They would like to re- remove those sources of threat, but they'd also would like a situation where it's not just they're left alone to be themselves, but they're actually lauded and looked up to and said, um, you know, sort of morality is radiating from from Beijing. That's a that's going to be difficult because of the incompatibility of values between uh, our system and those of Marxist-Leninism, which gets to some of the the ways in which there's just very different ideas of politics and how politics works that that underpin their regime. So, so what should we? do then as if, if you're in policy land i mean how does that change your and and yes i, I obviously we can't comment on policy the first rule of all adults right <laughs> <laughs> well, but if we were to we can't we, policy, can't, we, we, we can't we can't comment on we, we certainly can't comment on elections Maybe, yeah, yeah. We, might be able to, we might be able to comment on policy. no but but you see my point so what what do you yeah. you know like let's sharpen this up like Let's sure. take your arguments. Let's let's be like, okay, we we like it. We're we're there. You know what what advice would you give for policymakers then? What what should be done? To use another Russian so, phrase. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think there's um, I think there's there's quite a few things. Mm. Uh, I actually think that some of what has happened in the in the last several years, some of the things that the United States is doing and plenty of our allies are starting to do, is we are starting to try to base our relationship with China on a clear-eyed sense of the nature of the relationship, which is not kind of generally a partner with some areas of rivalry. It's not but the power sense, rising sense, part you're talking about. This is it has to be right, a different it, type of engagement. So, so I think I, I think that the world I think that the word rival is actually a really useful and helpful one if we kind of parse its distinctions from some of the other possibilities. Because if you have a rival, there may be some antagonism, but there are high stakes 
for both parties in the competition. And there's a lack of, of trust. And that doesn't mean you can't cooperate with the rival on some things. I like the example of, you know, you might have a rival in, in, in love or in business or in some other area, and you both stop your cars to help a motorist who, you know, was in an accident, or you both work on fighting a, a flood in your village together, or you both, you know, defend your village against some external attacker. You, you can do that. It's in your, it's in your, your collective interest to do, but the basis of the relationship is actually distrust overall. And I think that we've started over the last several years in the United States to reevaluate some aspects of the relationship where we had been too trusting and the regime in Beijing was exploiting that trust in order to advance its competitive goals, not just in terms of economics, but in terms of military modernization. And there's kind of this pattern that we've been seeing and countries uh, other developed countries are seeing as well that has led us to a place of distrust of the regime in Beijing. And I think that's actually, you know, quite healthy. That's not the end state. That's sort of the first step is to reevaluate all the pieces of the relationship and try to construct them in such a way that we're not being exploited. But the next step would be actually to shore up our own systems. You know, if, if democracy or democratic capitalism is going to win this contest, we have to be better at providing human flourishing to all of our peoples domestically. And so, you know, it is a case for us to get our own houses in order, but I don't think we stop either with kind of the defense of getting our own houses in order or the kind of, you know, making sure that the windows haven't been left open. We also need to work in concert with each other um, because, you know, what, what has tended to happen is it's kind of the Chinese regime, which is playing a, a very different game than the one we're playing and where you have state-owned enterprises, you have other state support of their champion firms in different ways. And many governments do that to some degree. But I think I don't think it's controversial to argue that the regime in Beijing is doing this in quite a dramatic and different way than many are. But if we're going to deal with that, I think we need to kind of pool our resources, compare notes and coordinate our action in some ways that we haven't done as much. I think a positive step is that new interparliamentary alliance on China that's being formed, was formed this this summer, where it's bipartisan in every country that's participating in it. So in the U.S., it's Senators Menendez and Rubio, but it's quite a few countries. And that's kind of a first step. You know, it's going to take a lot to compare notes and coordinate on legislation. So, you know, China's not able to exploit a loophole that one country leaves open. But there is kind of a sense in a lot of these global competitions that really are global at this point, that if it's us individually against China, possibly we lose. But if it's us collectively competing with China, possibly we win. That's kind of the way that I, I think makes sense to frame and, it. And so to go back a step, you think that our failure to integrate the points you're making about ideology into how we analyze China means that we underplayed the rival nature, so we weren't doing that coordination before. Whereas now we have, you know, if we, if we take these things that you're saying as right, that we will act differently because we see that the nature of China's arrival much more clearly and that we need that waking up to kind of act in concert. Yeah, I think that's already beginning to happen. And I don't think it's just a matter of, you know, the work that, that some scholars are doing, and I hope mine contributes to that in, in outlining the way that this 
reflects and is reflected in um, China's leaders' ambitions as they have talked about them and recorded them. It's happening already because people are seeing the evidence of the regime's actions and and the kind of the the flood of evidence and the and the flood of things in all sorts of different areas domestically and internationally are leading people to draw those conclusions. And so I'd say I'm I'm maybe providing a small but I hope crucial addition to that, which is to say, if we actually look at what China's leaders have said over time, although we have tended to emphasize the inconsistencies and sort of the twists and turns, as the regime might say, of its of its strategy, there's actually some very consistent drivers to its ambitions. And those should help us understand and not forget about um, the real nature of the contest that we're in. If Beijing adjusts to some of its recent missteps and kind of moderates its external presence a little bit less wolf warrior, a little bit more caution in some other areas, I think we need to not lose sight of the ambitions that they have articulated and that are embedded into their system, which I don't think are going to change overnight. I don't think, for example, if Xi Jinping has a heart attack, we necessarily, this is problem solved. I'm not in the, I'm not in the view that the problems we're now facing are simply a result of Xi Jinping. I think Xi is in many ways quite consistent with his predecessors. The change has been the party's assessment of their progress and their assessment of internal and external conditions. And they could certainly reassess and maybe some of our actions will cause them to reassess. But I don't think it's one man, Xi Jinping, that is causing the strategic tensions. And so therefore, I'm not as interested in the topic that I used to be quite interested in the government, which is sort of what is Xi Jinping's level of relative power to his fellows or how does, you know, is it Xi Jinping in a bathrobe circling a document or is it, you know, the is it the whole standing committee or the whole Politburo coming to consensus? That's kind of less important from my standpoint these days because I see there there as being a very consistent logic that's driving the party's goals over time. I mean, the, the, there's a part here, though, that you're basing this on party congress reports. You, you know, there's a wealth of materials. It's so easy for... To, to, to pick a quote here, a quote there. I mean, let's just take the 19th Party Congress. I mean, there's also a section in there on democracy and rule of law. Like, you know, quite a long one, as, as you know. I mean, there, there's, there's all sorts sure. of... There's all sorts they, they mean different things by it. They mean different things by it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Things by it. So, so that's, actually, that's actually a great example because the task there is we've tended to have this view, which is to say, this is just sort of, in many cases, this is sort of BS, and it's a bunch of droning stuff that's difficult to unpack. And what I'm saying, which I think actually you of all people, Ryan, will, you know, ought to be very sympathetic to this argument, which is that actually the ideas and the words matter and the concepts matter. And they're not, you know, the, the, the claim that, well, this is so vague that it doesn't mean anything. It's just not true. If you actually read the broader context of documents, in many cases, the explanation might have been in a prior party document. It might have been in a particular speech. It might have been in a strategy or policy document released somewhere lower down. And there's also going to be lots of amplifying commentary and elucidation that comes out at various levels of authoritativeness. And so, yes, they talk about democracy and the rule of law. So what do they mean by that? They mean different things than we do. It's not an area where I'm a, where I'm a deep scholar, but there are people who are actually doing some of that work. Mm. And we haven't comprehensively applied this approach to studying China. So mm. we've 
some people some people do it in particular narrow domains, but often they don't connect it to the overarching goals that the party has articulated. So you know, a great one from an area that Ryan, that you and I share from our government service, is PLA studies. So the study of China's military, the People's Liberation Army. What PLA studies has spent a lot of time doing is saying we, uh, the English-speaking readers, are going to assess what we think China's security needs are, and um, and and we're going to kind of extrapolate from that. And we're, we're also going to talk about a lot of the areas where they've got problems. So it's kind of funny, even now when, you know, they're the number two military in the world and they basically addressed the hardware part, you have some scholars saying, well, they haven't addressed the software part yet. And, you know, and internally, if you read their documents, they talk about all their problems. And, yep, that's good. We should carefully assess the delta between what they say and and what they're actually doing. And we should definitely pay close attention to the problems that they have. But what PLA studies has almost completely missed is the fact that great power status is a component of the goal of, of PLA modernization. PLA modernization is not just about addressing China's specific security challenges like, like the, the Taiwan issue or Uh, whatever else. It's also that there's explicitly this goal that part of the definition of national rejuvenation and part of the definition of being a great power is having a modern capable military. And so components of what the PLA is trying to do are based on that aspiration, which is subordinate to national rejuvenation. It's not just what's the specific military problems that they're facing. And so, you know, like building an aircraft carrier They were late compared with some other people to do that. Part of the aspiration for doing that is not because aircraft carriers are great utility uh, these days in in a world where missiles are so effective. It's that having an aircraft carrier is is a status symbol and is something that you can use to demonstrate that you're a world-class military. But we're still missing this in PLA studies. Uh, You know, you still have all these people talking about all the motivations for China going abroad. And they tend to say, well, there's economic reasons pulling them abroad. There's all these things. Well, a major driver of their desire to have a world-class military is because that's what a world-class power would have. And it's incredibly explicit in Xi Jinping's speeches. Uh, but it's also, if you look at the historical record, something that they that prior leaders talked about, they didn't use the word world-class, but they certainly said that they understood that military power was a component of socialist modernization and a component of changing China's status in the world. So, Dan, how does one go about learning how to do the sort of analysis you're kind of calling upon the the China watching community to engage in aside from I can like random people go and sign up to take (laughs) classes at NIU? Uh, Not really. Unfortunately, not with respect to NIU, because, you know, we're a government run right now. It's the Department of Defense. But in a few months, we're actually shifting over to the office of the director of national intelligence. But so my students are mid-career military or other government agency officials. So there's no tuition. Uh, the, the t- essentially, what's their home offices or if, or their home military service pay their salaries while they're in our one-year master's program. But to your question of how to get into this type of analysis, I'm actually struggling to figure out what social science discipline this falls under and what's kind of the academic banner that I should be holding aloft because it's not 
sort of straight discourse analysis. It's not some of the other things that come to mind, which tend to be sort of more instrumental. You know, I'm not coding words and I'm not talking about how the party uses ideology as an instrument, you know, to do something else. I'm actually trying to understand the party's ideas on its own terms and think about the implications of those. And so I'm actually have have a tough time identifying where that fits in academically. It, It might be history, but some of it's very contemporary and that's actually a problem within within China studies because there was a period where there wasn't a lot of access to China, and we may actually be heading back to that, unfortunately. And when people did a lot of this work by looking at official publications, but since China began to open up in the reform era, all sorts of other tools have been available to scholars, and they've begun to ask other kinds of questions. And you know, for the reasons we we outlined. The party's official views were not considered the most interesting thing to be researching. So we've kind of lost some of those skills. So some of the people that are doing this type of work used to work for the U.S. government's open source center, where they were kind of trained in those those methods. But that's not really something that we're seeing a lot of today. But if I were to advise somebody starting out in the field, I think get a grounding in the political history of the party and in the history of its institutions. That was excellent about the scholar Alice Miller, when she was editing China Leadership Monitor for many years. Uh, Alice Miller and I are in a different place in terms of our assessment of, of Xi Jinping and our assessment of the party's goals, perhaps, and certainly our assessment of the policy implications. But her approach is is one that I think is very foundational to the field, which is to try to understand the institutional history of the party. So when she was writing a China Leadership Monitor article on, say, the secretariat, she would not only tell you about how it was operating under a particular leader, but she'd also tell you the institutional history of how it had changed over time. And that kind of context, both like the political history of the party and its institutional history, are helpful for looking at the party's ideas and how they've changed. They're, they're part of the context in which to read them. But, you know, I came late to this. I, I started reading Xi Jinping's book and I had some of Mao's selected works, but I didn't have Deng or Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao. And I started to assemble those and read those. And uh, I had a friend from the State Department bring me Hu Jintao's selected works, which Xi Jinping hasn't bothered to translate. So they're only available in Chinese. But But reading through party history, when you already have some context from the secondary literature to actually read through the documents themselves, the speeches, I I found very illuminating and it was quite late in my career. And, you know, I've been a China specialist for a dozen years in the government and I hadn't done this. And now I think it's foundational and, and it's probably crucial to the field. So there's, there's probably no better way. There's no, there's no easy way to start apart from just trying to immerse yourself in the history, both political and institutional, and then getting a context from the documents. And Alice Miller in her valedictory essay in China Leadership Monitor when she retired from the editorship uh, makes a case for this type of analysis. So if people want to read kind of a, you know, a starting place, that valedictory essay, and I think it was in 2018, is a, is a good place to start. It is crazy. There's only like 10 people in you know non-chinese academia who do this is it not yeah i, I mean and, and 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 you know 
I mean, I guess, I guess maybe, maybe like compared to my, my sense is that in the Soviet Union, there were dozens and dozens of, I mean, during the Cold War, there were dozens and dozens of these folks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's made me interested in the history of area studies. So I've started to try to, to gather some of that literature to figure out why we were able to build that capacity then and why we weren't, you know, why it sort of atrophied. If I were to recommend a couple of books, there's a book that Michael Desch wrote that came out, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, called the cult, I think it's called The Cult of Irrelevance, or, the, or the title is similar to that. And it's kind of about how political science has strayed from asking the types of questions that are useful to policy. You know, there's a lot of people doing quantitative regressions and sort of the, they're, they're asking questions to fit the tool rather than asking questions that are the ones that are that are important. And as, as an intelligence practitioner, you know, someone who had a master's degree, had a good grounding from Johns Hopkins Sice in China studies in the, in the literature, at least kind of a scaffolding to get started. I often was frustrated when I looked for scholarship on particular granular pieces of understanding how the Chinese system works. So that's one of the reasons I think Ryan Manuel's work is, is great. He's, he's doing this type of granular unpack how the system works in a very detailed way. And that just, those, that's not the type of questions that political science asks because the, the social science disciplines are trying to build portable theory. So they're, they, they're trying to tell themselves that they are generating generalizable knowledge about politics in general. And if they're looking at China, the objective is not just understand China, it's learn something about politics that's portable and unfortunately, that there's kind of a distortive effect to that. And so I, I think it would be great if on a macro institutional level, we could resurrect some area studies work that's really kind of descriptive, basic work of understanding the details of politics in particular countries on their own terms. And, you know, maybe the layer of, of theoretical explanations could, could be added to that later, but there's kind of a neglect of basic descriptive work, in my judgment. It's still happening, but it's not happening because of the institutional and professional incentives. It's it's happening because people are passionate about it. And so I am interested in kind of the broader reform agenda of how can we how can we generate and kind of revitalize China studies to look at some of these things. You can observe that some of the people that are doing the types of work that I'm doing got their start you know, in the intelligence community. And there may be some relationship there. And and I think it partly has to do with the task that intelligence analysts face. Because if journalists are generally trying to describe what's happening, and they certainly do talk about causation and, and other things as well, but they're they're kind of like providing a description of what's happening. And you have academics are trying to generate portable theory oftentimes. But intelligence analysts are trying to help policymakers determine what in this particular instance is the best causal explanation of what's happening. So that kind of makes us omnivores and it kind of makes us want to, you know, we're not sticking with political science or sociology or IR theory. We kind of have to be intellectual omnivores and we kind of have to be very practical because there are things at stake for policy if we, if we make a mistake. And so maybe that that gives us a certain openness to, to different approaches. Dan, this was a real tour de force. Thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. 